Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. This week, we welcomed guest preacher Reverend Ivor Martin, the principal of Edinburgh Theological Seminary in Scotland. Thank you for inviting me to bring God's Word to you this morning. We're going to read from the Old Testament. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 33 and verse 7. We're going to read all the way through. I know it's quite a long reading, uh, but I'll try not to delay things. Um, We're going to read all the way through to 34 and verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend And stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not yet, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. 
Now, the mistake we make is to leave it at that. We don't, when we're reading this chapter, we don't follow it into the next chapter. And that's why I want to do that, because the next chapter continues with what, where we've left off. So let's continue it. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no, let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is the Lord doing what he said he was going to do in chapter 33. He does it in chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, of God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God's precious and inspired and inerrant word. Today I want to reflect with you on this unique event, not only in the life of Moses, but in the life of anyone in the Bible. There are many things that we could say about Moses. I'm quite sure you know many things about him. From the very beginning when he was born and his mother hid him in a basket in the River Nile, a basket made out of bulrushes because she was afraid that the king's men would take him and kill him. We remember also how he was brought up in Pharaoh's palace and how he existed half in Pharaoh's palace and half at his home, uh, receiving his education culturally and linguistically from Pharaoh, which prepared him for the life that God had planned for him. You remember the burning, how he killed the Egyptian, and how, the, how he had had to flee into Moab, uh, or ra rather Midian, and how he had met his wife there, and he had started working for his father-in-law, tending the sheep of his father-in-law. It was there that God confronted him in the flames of a burning bush and sending him back to Egypt because God's purpose for Moses was to deliver the people from the oppression that they were suffering, that they had suffered for 400 years. They had prayed to God for deliverance, and Moses was the means by which God delivered his people you remember the plagues of Egypt, the ten plagues of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh, in the face of each one, completely refused to allow the people to leave Egypt. You remember how the last one, the plague of the firstborn, uh, Moses relented, at least for a time, the time being, 
and how the waters had parted. There's so many things that we could say about Moses, how he led the people through the Red Sea and on to Mount Sinai, where he went to collect the Ten Commandments and to receive God's law, to meet with God once again. What made Moses truly unique in all the characters that we meet in the Bible was not any of these things. It was that simply this, that he knew God face to face. That's what the Bible tells us, that there wasn't a man like him in all the face of the earth. And the description that we find about Moses, we don't find it about anyone else. It doesn't matter how noble or righteous or obedient they were. This was a unique character in the Bible. And yet, what he enjoyed in his relationship to God is exactly the same as we enjoy through Jesus Christ. And that's why it is immensely important that we connect with Moses so that through Jesus that we can discover exactly the same blessing as we read about here. Now, the particular incident here is where Moses, at a time of immense difficulty, he prays this prayer that we read in chapter 33. Lord, he said, show me your glory. And God answered that prayer. He showed him his glory, or at least as much as he could cope with without being killed. That's what he did. What he saw, and I know I'm jumping the gun a bit, what he saw, we have absolutely no idea. Nonetheless, there is enough in this passage, read through the lens of the New Testament, to be a blessing to us and for us to connect with Moses so that we don't make the mistake of considering Moses as being so unique that he is completely separate from where we are today. He isn't. Although he lived in a different era, different culture, different times, different expectations, nonetheless, there is something in this passage that is deeply precious and deeply important for all of us this morning. So I want to ask these three questions that you have in your bulletin. I want to ask, first of all, what did Moses not see when God showed him his glory? What did he not see? And then the second question I want to ask is, what did Moses see? And then I want to ask the third question is, what did Moses hear? Which is what I said that we tend to skip over because we make the mistake of stopping at the end of chapter 33 and not following the story into chapter 34, which actually describes God meeting with Moses and revealing himself to him, but speaking at the same time. And whilst what Moses saw is enigmatic, what Moses heard is absolutely clear. In other words, God doesn't want us to know necessarily a detailed description of what Moses saw. Otherwise, it would be in the Bible. What he does want us to know is what Moses heard. That's why it's in the Bible. And so we're going to come on to that in a few moments' time, these three questions. However, I want to precede all of that by asking two prior questions. And the first one is this. Why did Moses ask God 
to show him his glory. What was the background? What was the context? And of course, you have to go all the way back into the children of Israel, all two million of them, having spent the last 400 years in Egypt. Pharaoh now was against them. He was opposed to them because there were so many of them. And he, so he put them to work, building cities for them. And, and he, would act, he, he treated them with such cruelty and such oppression that they cried out to God in their despair and in their distress. And it was then that God looked at his covenant people and he met with Moses. Moses, of course, had been born in obscurity to a humble family in Egypt, a humble Hebrew family in Egypt. His mother had, by faith, hid him. You remember how by faith she had hid him because she was so afraid that the soldiers would come and kill him. That was the rule at that time, that baby boys that were born to Hebrew families were to be, were to be destroyed. And somehow or other, in God's providence, he had been preserved. He grew, he grew up in the palace of Pharaoh, and where he learned the culture of the Egyptians. You remember how he had grown up, he killed an Egyptian, and that became known, and he had to flee to Midian. There he met his wife. And it was there, while he was looking after the sheep that belonged to his father-in-law, that he met God in the burning bush, or in the flames of the burning bush. And God had met with him because he, his purpose, his, his, he had wanted to commission Moses to go all the way back to Egypt and to be the deliverer of his people. You remember how the, through the ten plagues, Moses had refused despite the evident manifestation of God's power and his sovereignty. Moses, the Pharaoh had, had refused to listen until at last he allowed the people to cross the Red Sea. You remember how God had promised his people that he was going to lead them through the wilderness into the promised land. And their first stop was Mount Sinai, where they surrounded the mountain and where God met with them. And where they had been initially terrified of the presence of God, as you would be. You and I would have been equally terrified if we had seen what they saw. And how they had promised Moses that everything God says we will do. That was the promise that they made. Now here's the point. That every step of the way, from the moment that God revealed his power through the ten plagues in Egypt, God, it was perfectly obvious who God was, and that he was on the side of his people. He, way back at the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Egypt, he had, he had pledged himself to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and he was going to bless all nations of the world through them and through their descendants. So God was attached, covenantally attached to his people. And now he was manifesting himself in such a vivid manner 
by punishing the Egyptians and by leading, literally, dividing the Red Sea. I mean, how could that not be God? Sea doesn't just divide itself naturally. It wasn't some kind of random occurrence to allow the people to escape from the cruelty of the Egyptians. This was self-evidently the power, the magnificent power of God. God had promised that he would lead the people through the, remember how he led them, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. How could you mistake that as being anything else but God? How could you not live from then onwards in holy fear of the God who was present at that moment and every step of the way? How could you not tremble when you saw the thunder and the lightning, far worse than in Arkansas? How could you not tremble and fear when you saw the unique manifestation of God coming down on the mountain and commanding Moses to come up so, to, so that he would receive the law? Now, here's the bit. Moses spent 40 days up on the mountain, and meanwhile, the people decide that they are going to build their own idol as an object of worship. I mean, do you get the contrast? Do you get the extent to which the people of God, in the face of everything that was so terrifyingly obvious, they still decide that they want to make their own God? and to worship this God in their own way. I mean, how, how traitorous, how much of a betrayal is that? And how incredibly contradictory is that? God could not have done any more to make himself obvious or to pledge himself to his people, and all they needed to do was to enjoy him. That's all they needed to do. After all the years they had spent being treated with such cruelty in, it, in Egypt, all the oppression, and now they were set free to enjoy the presence of God, the rest that they could enjoy, the promises that one day God was going to lead them into a land of milk and honey and where the, everybody would be able to sit under their own fig tree. That was all ahead of them. All they had to do was to to just enjoy that and to worship him and to listen to him. And yet they decided to go their own way and to build the golden calf. Do you get it? Do you understand? Do you see that? Well, Moses, when he came down, it doesn't add up. This just doesn't make sense. What are you doing? It can't possibly be happening. Nothing worse could go wrong. And you know, when something simply doesn't add up like that, there are two options, aren't there? You either become so obsessed with, it, with what's going on around you that you despair. Or you turn to God in worship. And that's what Moses did. Because that's what worship is. Your pastor spoke earlier on in the service about how we're so tempted to being distracted by what's going on around us. 
And I reckon that most of us, even this morning, probably are. But worship is the opportunity not to escape what's going on around us, but to turn from it and to hide ourselves in God. To take refuge in the rock of ages who is cleft for me. And so Moses simply hides himself in God. Not because he's some kind of escapist. He knows he can't escape. But he knows that if he gets to see God, if he gets to connect with God, if he gets to, in the New Testament terms, come close, that's what James says, isn't it? Come close to God. Come near to God. And he will come near to you. That's its invitation and its promise this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why Moses asked that God would show him his glory. You know, there's another question that comes to my mind, and that's why did God show him his glory? And there's a really simple answer to it, because Moses asked. What is it that Psalm 37 says? Delight yourself in God and he will give your heart's desire to you. And there are many things that if we ask God for this morning, he's not going to give us because he doesn't want us to have them. But this is something that he will give us when we desire to come close to him and when we desire to take refuge in him. What is it David said? One thing I will desire of the Lord that I may be found in his holy place, that I may see the majesty and the glory of God. And I hope that prayer is on the heart of every single one of us. Now to the three questions, very briefly uh, this morning, that, that, that I, I'd want to, us to, to think about. First of all, the question is, what did Moses not see? Well, the chapter tells us, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face. He says, because, um, uh, because no one can see my face and live. Now, what is the face of God? The face of God is simply this, the unveiled majesty of a perfectly holy God. And the reason that none of us can look at the face of God today in this life is because we have become estranged from God. This world has become separated through sin. And as long as we are stained and polluted by sin, albeit our sin has been forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, nonetheless, we are always going to be imperfect in this world and we are not going to be able to see the fullness of the majesty of God here in this life. But here's the thing. That's exactly what God has promised us one day. That's what heaven will be. We will, in our sinless perfection, in a new body, a new glorified body that has been raised from the dead on the day that Jesus returns, and when, he, when the dwelling of God will be amongst men and women, and when God will dwell with us, and when all sin and misery and sickness will be removed in the new heavens and the new earth, 
heaven will be beholding the face of God. That's what we have to look forward to this morning. And that's why we can look at death in the face and say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? God has overcome death in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has risen as the first fruits. And we have the promise of God that the life that we live in the Lord Jesus Christ will extend into the resurrection and we will see God. Now, says Paul, we see in a glass darkly, but then we will see him face to face. Now, I wish I could say more about what that means. I can't. First of all, because words can't describe it. And secondly, because God has hidden the detail from us, probably because we are not capable of understanding what heaven will be like. One thing we know for sure is that nobody will ever want to be in this life again. Nobody will ever want to come back to this world. Despite everything that we enjoy in our lives, nothing will compare with the perfection and the bliss and the unbroken joy that God will give to all of his people in perfection. So that's what he did not see. So then what about what did he see? What did Moses actually see? Well, uh, we're not told. This is one of these enigmatic parts of the Bible that I'm afraid God doesn't want us to know. He hasn't given us a description of exactly. He's told us all the rest. He's told us that there was a place in a, on a mountain. There was a cleft or a little cave in the rock. He told us, he's told us that God was going to do something to protect Moses from seeing his face. And yet when it all happens... We're not told, we're not given any description that kind of leaves us asking all these questions, doesn't it? And it might even tempt us to be a little bit frustrated. Well, we mustn't be frustrated because just God doesn't want us to know exactly what he saw. But there are one or two things we can say. First of all, in verse 23... There's the most intriguing statement. I'm sure you noticed it as we were reading. Verse 23, God says, I will take away my hand. Once I put you into the cleft of the rock, I'm going to take away my hand, and you're going to see my back. But my face shall not be seen. You're going to see my back. Hold on a minute. What does that mean? How does, does God have a front and a back? How are we to understand this in, in terms of divine length? This is God's word. That's what he said. You'll see my back. That must raise a whole bunch of questions. Well, in order to try and sort of reflect on this, we first of all have to remember something really important when God says something about this about himself. This is what we call an anthropomorphism. That's a long word that simply means this. Sometimes when God describes himself, he describes himself in human terms. He describes himself 
in human language. And he describes himself as he would if he was a human. And that's what he's doing here. All right? So he's trying to make things as simple as possible, not just for Moses, but for us as well, by describing himself in this way. For example, the hand of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot. Well, God doesn't have a hand because God is immortal, invisible. He is spirit. You can't see him. He, that is, his nature cannot be seen. You know, when God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis chapter 3 or Genesis chapter, chapter 3, you know, God doesn't walk. He doesn't have legs that walk. But it's God describing himself in ways that, that we are able to appreciate because they are put in human terms. Now, there's something really important here. We're not to dismiss these. We're not to say, well, you know, this, this, he's this is just an anthropomorphism. Of course, God doesn't mean this. We have to be very careful here. Because God does mean it. When he says he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. And when it says, you shall see my back, Moses saw his back. Now, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it looked like. But Moses saw something. And here's the way I want to put it. He saw, he got to see that which can be seen of God. All right? He got to see as much of God as is possible for sinful man to see without him being destroyed. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wouldn't it have been wonderful to see what Moses saw? Would it not have been wonderful? Because we're intrigued by this, aren't we? Naturally so, I think, is every, we have every right to be. I think that, that it's one of these passages in the Bible that just raised so many questions. But it also kind of, it kind of makes you think, well, that wouldn't have been absolutely amazing to see the wonder, the glory, the splendor, the majesty of God. Well, let me tell you this. We have seen more than he has than he saw. We have seen more than he saw. And the reason I can say that with absolute confidence is because there are verses in the Bible that make this absolutely clear. I don't mean, I don't mean that we have seen visible manifestations like Moses saw. But nonetheless, through the eye of faith, by the, 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 as God's Spirit has opened up His Word and has introduced us to Jesus Christ, we have got to see God in His glory. That's what the disciples said when they described Jesus in John chapter 1. What was it that John said? We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
What was it Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 1 and verse 3? He says, the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What is it that Jesus himself said to his disciples? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, that applies not just to the people who were with him, because we have to remember there were people who were around at Jesus' time who saw him in the flesh and who hated him at the same time. So he's not just talking about whether it was possible to see him or what he looked like. We don't know what Jesus looked like. It's not important. We can see him through the eyes of the Bible as he is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. So as we discover Jesus, we see the glory of God. Now, there are two things I want to say about this. The glory of God can be thought about as the glory of his being, what he is in essence, and what he does, his deeds. So he is glorious in himself. He's majestic. He's splendid in himself. And he is splendid in what he does. And that's what Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 3 means when it says that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. But we, we can't just stop there. Because like I say, the glory of God is what God does. And what God did supremely in Jesus Christ is truly, truly spectacular. You think of all the splendid things, of all the displays of the splendor of God that you have in the Bible. It doesn't take us long to think about it, does it? Creation itself. God speaks the universe into being. He says, let there be light. Was there ever a, more dis a greater display of the magnificence of God than when he said, let there be light, and there was light? Let there be land, let there be sea, let there be fish, let there be vegetation, let there be trees, let there be mountains, and so on and so forth. You think of creation. You think of the great judgments of God. We've just been speaking about the dividing of the Red Sea. You think about the raining of fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, the terrible judgment of God. Again, a display of God's splendor and a reminder of his holiness. But do you know what the greatest display of the glory of God is? It's in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why I say with no hesitation whatsoever that we have seen the glory of God. What was it Jesus said himself when Judas at the Last Supper, he left the company. He said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. What did he mean by that? He meant that in a few moments' time, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be mocked and I'm going to be shamed and I'm going to be tortured and I'm going to be nailed to a wooden cross. Is that glory? 
It's the most amazing event that has ever taken place and is the greatest display of the goodness and the grace of God. We have seen his glory. Thirdly and very and lastly, what did Moses hear? You have to go into the next chapter, chapter 34, to what God says about himself. Be ready in the morning. Carve up for yourself two tablets of stone. Meet me in the morning. So he did so, and the Lord passed before him. Verse 6, and proclaimed. Now listen to this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Now, I want you to look for the contradiction in this statement. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father and of the children. How can these two things be? You see the contradiction? He says on the one hand, he's a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but he's a God on the other hand who will no means clear the guilty. Now, if you think about it, all of us are guilty. We have sinned in thought, word, and action. So how can any of us enjoy the mercy and the forgiveness of God if we're guilty and if God does not clear the guilty. He's a God of justice, but at the same time, he's a God of mercy. How can these two things both be true? The only answer is in what we talked about already. The supreme display of the glory of God on the cross where Jesus, the Son of God, was made to be sin for us and where he suffered the anger, the wrath, the judgment of God so that God would show mercy to us, to all those who trust in Jesus. So chapter 34 is the gospel. The gospel in veiled form. It's revealed, it's made manifest in the pages that follow when Jesus comes into the world and where he is hung on the cross and where he rises victorious from the grave. Now, he says, is the Son of Man glorified. So I wonder what Moses saw. We'll never know for sure. I wonder how much of God's being he saw or whether or not he got to see something of God's plan, what God was going to do. That would have made sense to him. That would have made sense of all the stuff that was going on around him, the forsaking, the betrayal of the, Is of the Israelites, the idolatry of the Israelites. What's God going to make of all of this? Is he going to destroy them? That's what they deserve. But that was not God's plan. God was going to fulfill his covenant and one day send his son. I wonder if what Moses saw on the mountain was something of what God was going to do one day 
as he revealed and as he fulfilled and unfolded that plan to send his own son into the world to die for lost men and women. Well, we'll never know. But what I do know is this, that in Jesus Christ, you and I see the splendor of God. The question is, what do we do with it? Do we relish it? Do we treasure it? Do we worship him? And do we say this morning, Lord, show me more today of what Jesus did for me when he gave himself. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our time together and we pray that you will, that Jesus will be ever more precious to us and in such a way that our lives will be impacted day by day as we seek to love him and serve him and honor him and obey him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Thank you.